The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 107, and the sermon text is 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. If you would like to begin to turn there, that would be wonderful, Psalm 107. We will read the entire psalm. It's rather long, but very encouraging, and it does pertain to what we are studying in the New Testament today. Psalm 107, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached to a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction." Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven." Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there He lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruit, fruitful yield. By His blessing they multiply greatly, and He does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But He raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad. And all wickedness shuts its mouth. 
Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul wrote to his co-worker Timothy saying, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it today. Here in the text that is before us, we find the last of Paul's instructions to Timothy regarding the care of particular groups within the Christian congregation. First, Paul spoke to the care of men and women, young and old. Next, he addressed the care of widows. And after that, he spoke to the treatment of pastors and elders. This entire section began in chapter 5, verse 1. And we bring it to a conclusion today. Here, Paul has a word to say about the care of bondservants. The question is, how are these bondservants to be exhorted to relate to their earthly masters? And as we begin to consider this passage, I think it is important to repeat something that I emphasized when we first began to study this section. And here was what I emphasized. Though it is true that in Christ we are all one, so that there is no distinction between male and female, young and old, rich and poor, It is also true that in Christ we are many. In Christ's church there are many unique individuals. And there are are in fact male and females, young and old, rich and poor. And these groups in Christ's church will have particular needs and obligations. So in Christ we are one and we are also many. In Christ's church there is perfect unity and there is also beautiful diversity. And no, this is not double talk. In fact, I believe it's crucial for us to confess this. We are to celebrate both our unity and diversity in Christ if we are going to truly honor one another as God has called us to do. Both this truth that we are one in Christ and also diverse is essential to comprehend if we are to truly honor one another as God has called us to do. That word honor should ring a bell. You know that it is the glue that binds this entire section of Paul's letter together. From 5.1-6.2, through 6, 2, Timothy is, in essence, being urged to see to it that honor is shown to the various groups within Christ's church. And as I have said, knowing that in Christ's church there is both unity and diversity is key. If we are to show honor to one another. First, we must know for certain that in Christ we are one. We must know for certain that in Christ we are one. As Paul says elsewhere, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What an important teaching this is. In Christ we are one. We stand before Him as equals. In this sense, there is no distinction. We are children of God. All are to be honored, therefore, for all who are in Christ stand on equal footing. All humans are made in the image of God, and all who are in Christ are God's beloved children. This is true of the very young, and it is true of the very old. It is true of the very rich and the very poor, the powerful and the weak, male and female, free and slave, Jew and Gentile. 
And I am saying that this is a marvelous doctrine. It's a very unifying doctrine. The world is so very divided, as you know. People divide over race, they divide over gender, they divide over class. But in Christ we have unity. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down by Him. In Christ we are one. But in Christ we are also diverse. And I want for you to pay careful attention to this. Our unity in Christ does not do away with every distinction, nor does it obliterate authority within the church and within society. In Christ we are one, but this does not mean that we are all the same. We are to consider perhaps the sexes. Male and female are equal in Christ. They are both beloved children of God, co-heirs together through faith in Him, but this does not mean that they are the same. They share human nature in common. They share Christ and all of the benefits that are found in Him in common. But men and women are also different. And I am saying to you, as I have been saying for weeks now, that the diversity is beautiful. The diversity is beautiful. It's to be celebrated. Both men and women are to be honored within society, the home, the church. But men and women are called to take different roles according to God's design in the home. Wives are called to honor their husbands as head. And husbands are called to honor their wives with love, given their position as the weaker vessel. And in the church, some men are called to hold the office of elder and deacon. And so I may ask you, are men and women equal, brothers and sisters? And the answer is, yes, they are equal. Are they the same, brothers and sisters? No. And consequently, a special kind of honor is to be shown to each according to to God's design. Honor is the glue that binds this entire section of Paul's letter together. Who is to be honored? Well, everyone is to be honored. Every human is to be honored because they are made in God's image, and every Christian is to be honored because they are one in Christ. Paul teaches this doctrine of unity so clearly in other places. But here in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 6, 2, Paul makes distinctions. He draws our attention to the various groups that exist within Christ's church. Older men, and, older men and women are to be treated with a special kind of honor. Widows, too, they are to be cared for in their distress. And those who hold the office of elder are to be honored given the authoritative position they hold. Some, we were told, deserve double honor. And all that I have been saying regarding our unity in Christ and our diversity does really come to a head in the passage that is before us today. For here, Christian bondservants are commanded to show honor to their earthly masters. Yes, they are even to honor their Christian masters. Perhaps I should say, especially so. Now, we must use our imaginations here. For we do not have masters and bondservants in our culture or congregation. But we must know that they were present in the church of Ephesus where Timothy was a minister. And so we must imagine that. Imagine what that would have been like. In the church of Ephesus and in many other congregations in the first century, there were men and women, old and young, married and single, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. All of that sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? We have those distinctions present within our congregation. But in Ephesus and in the early church, there were also masters and bondservants. This very diverse group would assemble together on the Lord's Day just as we do, united by their shared faith in Christ to give worship to God the Father, to whom they each had been reconciled through Christ's shed blood. 
They were one in Him, just as we are one in Him. They were equals in Christ, but some were masters over others in an earthly sense. And so it is not difficult to imagine why Paul needed to address this. Here he addresses the attitude of Christian bondservants towards their masters, whether Christian or non-Christian. I think we can see that there was the potential for division within the church, between these groups. And here is why Paul gives special attention to bondservants. Now, before we go any further, I should say something about slavery as it existed in the first century Roman world. And if you remember, it was not long ago that I made some remarks on this subject in a sermon on Ephesians 6, 5-9, through 9, where the topic came up. But I think these remarks are necessary, to, to repeat them even here, because it is difficult for modern-day Christians to read of, of slaves or bondservants in the Scriptures and to not think about the slavery as it existed in the United States of America not long ago. It's difficult for us to read this passage and to see bondservants mentioned and to not think about that. Modern-day Christians will sometimes wonder, why did Paul command bondservants to honor their masters and not command masters to free their bondservants? Why did he not command that? And this is a valid question. But let me make a few observations to help us understand, and I will rapidly state them. I believe there are eight brief points here. One, the form of slavery that existed in the first century Roman world was not the same as the slavery that existed in this nation not long ago. The slavery that plagued this nation was energized by the awful view that one race of men was inferior to another. Slavery in the first century world was not that. Though the slavery that existed in the first century world was not driven by a racist ideology, it was no less brutal. And this is something we must acknowledge, and it is my second point regarding bondservants. Slaves were often treated very poorly by their masters, and again, we must acknowledge this. Three, not all masters treated their slaves or bondservants unjustly. In fact, some were treated very kindly. They were considered members of their master's household. Some were treated like sons and daughters. Four, there were many reasons why people came to be slaves in the first century. Some were captured through military conquest. Others were sold as slaves after being abandoned at birth. Some sold themselves into slavery to escape poverty and debt. This was very common. Someone would come to be a bondservant because they grew destitute. Uh, they were now indebted. They were poor. And this was their way out uh, to sell themselves to servitude for a time and for pay. Five, while the slave trade was plagued by oppression and injustice, it is not impossible to imagine some situations where a man or woman could come to be a slave justly and to be treated justly by their masters. And here I'm thinking of those situations where a man or woman would sell themselves as bondservants to work for a set amount of time and set pay to escape poverty or debt. Now, this was an unfortunate situation, but I do not think that we can say automatically that this was unjust. It was how the economy in that day worked. Six, slavery was pervasive in the first century. It was very common. Uh, the Roman economy depended upon the work of slaves, and it is estimated by some that one-third of the residents of Ephesus were slaves. Think about that for a moment. One-third were slaves. Seven, 
When Paul wrote concerning the attitude that bondservants should have towards their masters, he was not speaking to the goodness or badness of the institution of slavery as it existed in the first century. Instead, he was addressing the reality of the situation. The reality was this. In the church of Ephesus, there were bondservants and masters. Here in 1 Timothy 6, 1-2, the question is not, is this good? But simply, how should bondservants act towards their masters, given the reality of the situation? And eight, lastly, if we wish to gain a better understanding of Paul's view of the institution of slavery, we must look elsewhere. And when we do, we notice that one, he never speaks of the institution of slavery in positive terms. It is not rooted in creation. It is not an institution to be desired. Its existence can only be explained by the fall of man into sin and its effects. This is what we find when we consider what the Scriptures say about this institution as it existed in the first century. Two, Paul does warn masters to treat their bondservants well. For example, in Ephesians 6, 9, he calls masters to honor their bondservants, saying, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he, is, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is a very strong warning from the Apostle. Do the same to them. I think means... They're to honor you, but you are to honor them also because you have the same master. You have the same God. And so, treat them well. Treat them well. Three, there is one letter of Paul that is particularly revealing, and that is Philemon. Evidently, Philemon was a wealthy Christian man who had bondservants. One of them was named Onesimus. And Onesimus ran away. He came into contact with Paul, heard the gospel, and believed. And Paul sent him back to Philemon, along with a letter, which we have to this day, which urged Philemon to receive Onesimus back, but not as a bondservant, instead as a beloved brother in Christ, and to treat him well. It's a very moving letter, I think, uh, Paul's letter to, to Philemon. But we can see how Paul handled himself in regard to the question of the relationship between bondservant and master there in the first century, even within the first century church. When all is considered, we see that Paul in his writings was aimed not so much at the transformation of the Roman culture, but at teaching Christians, slave and free, how to live to the glory of God in the circumstances they were in. This was the reality. In the Roman world, there were slaves and bondservants. Neither Paul nor the Christians were in a position to change that reality. And so what to do? Christians were to show honor to those under them and also over them. That is Paul's teaching here. You know, I was thinking, as modern-day Americans, we can tend to be very idealistic. What do you do if a government begins to act in a tyrannical fashion? What do you do? I think as, as, as modern-day Americans, we say, start a revolution. And I say to you, really? Is it so easy? The American Revolution turned out pretty good, but many, many others have failed. And revolution is not always or often the answer. Sometimes Christians are simply called to suffer patiently under despotic rule. In fact, this is often the case. Take, for example, our brethren in North Korea today. Think of them. What options do they have? What options do they have? They're not in a position to to rebel or to start a revolution. They are to suffer patiently, trusting only in God and waiting for the deliverance that only He can provide for them. 
And what do we do when we see injustice in our society? Well, we know that we pray for its eradication and we act when we have the opportunity. Of course, this is true. But sometimes we are powerless to bring about change. Sometimes we are powerless to bring about change. And so I am saying to you that yes, there is a time for revolution. Yes, there is a time to seek the emancipation of the oppressed. But sometimes we can only patiently suffer. Do you realize that, brothers and sisters, and citizens of the United States of America, with all of our independence, right, with all of our desire for freedom and to uphold it, do you realize that sometimes the only thing we can do is patiently suffer? And what I am saying to you is that this was the reality in the days of the early church. This was their reality. Being such a small minority, the Christians were powerless to change the system, but they could honor God and one another in the midst of a crooked culture and thus bring glory to God. And that is what Paul is here encouraging. Listen to how Peter exhorted bond servants in 1 Peter 2, 18-21. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you, are, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in His steps. This is the kind of teaching that we found, find throughout the pages of the New Testament. Peter here is calling servants to be subject to their masters with all respect, specifically not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Do you hear it, brothers and sisters? What could they do? They could be like Christ in those homes and in that situation. They could suffer like Christ. This is a gracious thing, he says. They were to endure this sorrow while suffering unjustly. They were to entrust themselves to God that He would sustain them. And so, yes, I do get it. When you read 1 Timothy 6, 1-2, and you hear Paul command that bondservants honor their masters, you think, but what about the masters, Paul? Why not command them to set their bondservants free? Why not command that? Well, tell me, brothers and sisters, where would these bondservants go after being set free? Where would they go? How would they earn a living? What would they eat? Where would they sleep? And so I am saying to you, let us not be so naive. That is what I am saying. Sometimes things are more complicated than they seem on the surface. It was neither the time nor the place for the emancipation of these slaves. And so what did Paul do? He did the only thing that, he, that could be done in the moment. In his writings, he exhorted Christian slaves and masters to honor one another. To do what is right and just in the eyes of God, given the circumstance. The passage that is before us today is actually divided into two simple parts. In verse 1, Paul speaks to bondservants who are under non-believing masters. And in verse 2, he speaks to bondservants under believing masters. And in both instances, bondservants are exhorted to honor their masters. This exhortation is delivered first to Timothy, but through Timothy to them and so, this passage is divided into these two parts. Verse 1, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. 
The phrase, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, indicates that Paul has bondservants with unbelieving masters in mind. It would not be appropriate for Christian masters to rule over their bondservants in such a way that they could be described as being under a yoke. A yoke is fitting for oxen and other beasts of burden, but not the shoulders of men. The language is metaphorical, of course, but the metaphor here that is used in verse 1 communicates that these bondservants were under a heavy burden. These bondservants served masters who ruled with a heavy hand. And we should not forget that many of the early Christians were of this class of men. This was their circumstance. They were not free, but they were slaves. And many did suffer under cruel masters. So what were these bondservants to do? What were they to do? Were they to fight for their freedom and cast off the yoke of bondage? Were they to serve their masters begrudgingly and treat their masters with contempt, reasoning thus, I am a child of God, Jesus is my Lord, this man will no longer have authority over me. Is that what they were to do? No, Paul says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. But these masters, we say, they did not treat their servants honorably. No, But according to God's providence, they were in fact masters over these. And so Paul commanded the Christian bondservants to show them honor. These masters were to be honored, not because they were honorable men and women, but given the position they held. And why was Paul so concerned that Christian bondservants honor their unbelieving and perhaps harsh earthly masters? Why was he concerned that they honor them? He says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That was his concern. And we are to think about this. What motivated Paul's instruction here? The glory of God amongst the nations and the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ is what motivated Paul to say what he said. And the glory of God God amongst the nations and the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ was to motivate those who were mistreated as bondservants to honor their masters. Apparently, these non-believing masters did permit these Christian bondservants to assemble with the Christian congregation. And what would happen if these Christian bondservants returned to treat their masters with contempt, with disrespect? Well, God's name would be blasphemed, and the teaching of Jesus would be scorned. The glory of God and the furtherance of Christ's kingdom was the leading concern for the Apostle, and it should be our leading concern as well, brothers and sisters. We do not have masters and bondservants in our culture or congregation. But a little bit later we will seek to apply this to our context. And I am saying to you that that our behavior, our behavior should be influenced by, motivated by this concern above all else, the glory of God and the furtherance of His kingdom on earth. In verse 2 Paul turns his attention to the bondservants who had believing masters, saying, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved teach and urge these things. So here, in verse 2, by way of inference, we see that it was possible in the first century Roman context for Christians to have Christian bondservants and to treat them justly. It is not hard to imagine how this would be the case. 
Again, imagine a person falling into poverty and being taken into a wealthy household to serve for a time, being compensated for their labors, treated with dignity and respect, and eventually set free. And and this happened in the first century. And I think we are to assume that this was the way that Christian masters treated their bondservants, especially Christian bondservants. In fact, we know that in the first century, some bondservants would decide to never leave the household because they had it so good in their master's home. This would happen from time to time. They would say, this is my family. This is my home. I've been treated so well here. And my opportunities for prosperity are so large here when compared to having my freedom. I will stay forever a bondservant. It did happen. And I think we are to assume that this is how Christian masters treated their servants. Whether believers or non-believers, they treated their servants, their bondservants, with kindness. They were fair. They were generous with them. We are to assume that they treated them with all respect and honor, even as members of their household. If they did not, then they were violating the command of Scripture. We know this for sure. And so now I moved on to application, brothers and sisters. Again, we do not have masters and bondservants in our culture or our churches today. Thanks be to God. So how does this passage apply to us? How does this passage apply to us? We must apply the Scriptures, brothers and sisters. Whenever we encounter God's Word, it must change us. God's Word is to renew the way that we feel, think, speak, and act. And I would ask you to consider this. Perhaps the way that we feel and think is not right. Perhaps it needs to be adjusted to God's revelation. Sometimes the application of God's Word is very obvious and direct. For example, when the Scriptures say, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We we know exactly what is being required of us here. We know exactly what the Scriptures are calling us to do. But sometimes the application of Scripture is less obvious. We must dig a little. And this is one of those texts. If we had masters and bondservants in the congregation, then the application would be very direct. But since we do not, we must work to identify the principles that undergird Paul's instruction to bondservants. So the application that we make will be indirect and will come to us by way of implication, implications of the truth that is found here. And so here are two suggestions. Here are two suggestions. Firstly, if it is true that Paul commanded Christian bondservants to show honor to their masters, even masters that were unbelieving, harsh, and unjust, then it is also true that we are to show honor to those who are over us, even if they are dishonorable people. Do I hear an amen to that? I should. They are to be honored, not because they are honorable, but because they have authority over us, according to the will of God. This is a very important lesson for Christians to learn. Christians are to pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That is Paul writing in Romans chapter 13, verse 7. This principle is first learned within the home. Christians are to honor their parents, not only when their parents act honorably, but always. Children, do you realize this? Not only are you to honor your parents when you think they are being good, but even when they are having a bad day, parents are to be honored. There are limits to this, of course. 
If the parent is commanding the child to do something sinful, the child is to disobey them. The child must obey God rather than man. But even that act of disobedience is to be done respectfully. And so tell me, parents, maybe I'll ask you the question. If you are having a bad day and are acting dishonorably, that happens from time to time, doesn't it? Can we be honest about that? As parents, we sometimes have bad days. Sometimes we're in a bad mood. Sometimes we are being impatient or harsh, to name just two things. So parents, if you are having a bad day and are acting dishonorably, what do you expect from your children? Are they then permitted to disrespect you? I suspect you would say, no. They are not permitted to disrespect me. Your children are to honor you not because you are honorable, but because of the authority that you have over them. And what about the relationship between husbands and wives? We know that wives are to honor their husbands. They are to submit to them and respect them, for God has called husbands to be the head of their wives. And, do not forget this, husbands are also called to honor their wives. They are to love, cherish, protect, and provide for them. Husbands are, to quote Peter, to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with them of the grace of life, so that their prayers may not be hindered. So husbands and wives are to honor one another. Tell me, brothers and sisters, are they to do this always or only when their spouse is acting honorably? The answer is always. In fact, it is when your husband or wife is having a bad moment or day that you have the greatest opportunity to show them honor. You are to show them grace. You are to love them. And we know that love covers a multitude of sins. You are to honor them even, or perhaps I should say especially, when they are acting dishonorably. The same sort of thing can be said regarding the relationship between elder and church member, citizen and governor. Remember the Christian is to pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Honor is owed to those who rule in the church and in the civil realm. And this honor is not contingent upon the behavior or policies of the man. He is to be honored because of the position of authority he holds according to the will of God. You know, as I was writing this portion of the sermon, it occurred to me that sometimes we have a difficult time understanding how a person can be both very strong, courageous, firm, and resolute, and at the same time humble, gracious, gentle, meek, and mild. I think we often assume that a person will either have the one temperament or the other. We assume that people are either confrontational or non-confrontational, bold or meek, direct or indirect. And indeed, people do have different temperaments. I'm not denying that. But here is my concern. Sometimes people will excuse their bad behavior by appealing to their God-given temperament. Some will fail to confront and stand when they need to stand, saying, it's just who I am. I'm passive. I don't like confrontation, you see. And so they cower when they should stand, or they remain silent when they should speak. And others will be rude, harsh, and abrasive, and they will excuse it, saying, it's just who I am. 
God made me to be a fighter. I'm a very direct person. Well, brothers and sisters, may I suggest to you that who you are might need to change. That should not be a new thought for us as Christians. We call that progressive sanctification. Not only has God forgiven us all of our sins in Christ Jesus, we know that He is also sanctifying us, making us more like Christ progressively by His Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say this now because I'm afraid that some, when they hear that we are called to honor those who have authority over us, assume that means we are to be entirely passive. Is that what I mean? Entirely passive? These take honor to mean never disagree, never take a stand, never confront. And I don't think that's what it means at all. Instead, what it means is that we are to relate to those over us being mindful of the position they hold. And we are to treat them in a way that is fitting. We are to honor them always, even when that means we push back against them, we disagree with them. Take the parent-child relationship as an example again. Does a child disrespect her father when she comes to him at the right time and in the right way and says, Dad, can I talk to you about something that has been bothering me? The way that you've been treating mom lately is bothering me, etc. Maybe you would disagree with me, but as a father, I would not feel dishonored by that. That would be hard for me to hear. It might wound my pride. But I would not feel dishonored. And neither would I feel dishonored if my wife said something similar to me. But I would feel dishonored if my child, being frustrated with my bad attitude, began to lash out at me, speaking disrespectfully to my face and behind my back, etc. Do you see the difference? And so please understand this. When I exhort parents and children, husbands and wives, elders and congregants, governors and citizens to honor one another, I do not mean never disagree, never correct, never confront. Instead, I mean that we are to do all of these things when necessary in a way that is honoring, fitting, and Christ-like. Was Christ confrontational? He was at times, wasn't He? Was Christ meek and mild? He was also that. Did He ever dishonor Someone that was owed honor. No, for then he would have sinned. In fact, if you want an example of a man who was perfectly strong, courageous, firm, and resolute, and at the same time humble, gracious, gentle, meek, and mild, then we are to look to Christ. We are to grow up in Him, brothers and sisters. We are to be like Him. If we are mature in Christ, then we will pay to all what is owed to them, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so the point is this, do not believe the lie that says you are to honor others so long as they are honorable. Think of what that lie would do to a marriage relationship. Think about the arguments or fights that you've had with your spouse over the years. I've heard it so many times. When we fight, it's over the stupidest things. You know? Yeah? But but, but what, what is it? You know, what happened? It's probably that she spoke to you disrespectfully and you, because you're prideful, spoke disrespectfully to her in return. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, right? Law governs that relationship, doesn't it? But no, we are to show honor to one another, even when the other is acting dishonorably. Instead of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, we're to be gracious and kind in our response. And so I think that is the point. Do not believe the lie that says you are to honor others so long as they are honorable. No, husbands, do not treat your wives this way. And wives, do not treat your husbands this way. You are to honor one another always. And the same could be said to parents and children, elders and congregates, citizens and governors. 
Were this not true, then Paul would not have written to bondservants with oppressive masters, saying, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. There is a principle that undergirds that command. And the principle is this, honor is to be shown to those to whom it is due. Secondly, if it is true that Paul commands Christian bondservants to honor their Christian masters, then it is also true that we must pursue contentment concerning our particular place in life, guarding our hearts against covetousness, and protecting the congregation for division. Now you're saying, wait a minute, how did you get there? How did you get that point of application out of this text? I hope that you can see how. I want you to imagine the danger in the church of Ephesus. There in that congregation, masters and bondservants worshipped side by side. They probably sat in the same row with one another. They sang together. They prayed together in, in the Christian congregation. And we know that in Christ they were equal. They were equal. But in the world... They were not equals. The one had more than the other. The one had authority over the other. And how easy it would have been for the bondservants to grow jealous, discontent, bitter towards God and their earthly masters. And this must have been a problem in Ephesus, or else Paul would not have written these words, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful. On the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Again, there are no masters and bondservants at Emmaus, but there may be bosses and employees sitting side by side. Some members will have more than others as it pertains to material possessions. Some are enjoying pleasant life circumstances, whereas others are walking through dark and difficult times. And in Christ we are to honor one another. This means that those with much will need to honor those with little. And those with little will need to honor those with much. But this will not be possible, possible if the heart is filled with covetousness and discontentment. The tenth of the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt not covet. It requires of us full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor and all that is his, and it forbids of us all discontentment with our own estate and envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. It's our catechism. You probably guessed it. It helps us to see what is required and forbidden in the Tenth Commandment. Covetousness is a sin of the heart, and I am saying to you that it is deadly. In fact, left unchecked, it does produce other sins forbidden in the second table of God's law, most obviously murder, theft, and adultery. If there is covetousness in the heart, it does produce these things. And covetousness, if left unchecked, will destroy the unity of the church. Christians will not honor one another if they are jealous of one another. In fact, those who have little might be particularly prone to this, to look at those who have much and to say, it's not fair, I wish I had what they have. And they develop resentment within their hearts. Being content does not mean that we are to be complacent. There's nothing at all wrong with trying to better your circumstance or wishing to escape some suffering. That is not wrong. 
In fact, it is right for you to better your circumstances if you are able to do so in a way that is honoring to God. But as we work and as we wait patiently upon the Lord, we must pursue contentment and keep our hearts free from all covetousness. And clearly this was on Paul's mind when he wrote these words. For in verse 6 of this same chapter we read, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. If we are not content... That is to say, satisfied in God and with the place that He has assigned to us, then we will not be able to do what is commanded in Romans 12:15, which says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 and following, saying, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord is a bondservant, as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And so, how important it is for us to be content, brothers and sisters. And we must be content in God, as the Apostle said. He is to be our portion. He is to be our joy. He is to be our satisfaction. And we must recognize that He has appointed us to our place in life. Do you realize this? We were born into this world at a certain time and place and to certain parents. We were born either male or female. We, will, we were born with certain mental and physical abilities. Some were born to rich families, others poor. Some to good and loving parents, others to negligent parents. Some we call privileged. And others we might say are disadvantaged. And the world will never be content with this. For the world does not submit to God and His will for us, but constantly rebels against Him. But in Christ we are to be content. Where there is injustice, we must seek to correct it. Where there is an opportunity to improve our own condition or the condition of others, we must take the opportunity. But until then, we must submit to the will of God for us. We must wait patiently on the Lord, finding our satisfaction, not in the things of this earth, but in Him. In the church, brothers and sisters, we are one, but we are also many. Let us be sure to honor one another in our unity and diversity in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, above all else we submit to your authority. 
You are our Lord. You are our King. We submit to you and we submit to Christ who has had all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth given to Him. But Father, we do see that we are also called to submit to authority here on earth and to honor that authority. And we are asking for your help, O Lord, to do that very thing. Help us to give the respect that is owed to others to them, Lord. Help us to be faithful to do this. And Lord, as we sojourn in this world, we confess to you that we sometimes run up against difficult circumstances where our obedience to you and our obedience to other authorities are in conflict. And so give us wisdom, Lord, to to navigate these difficult questions and circumstances, Lord. But even as we do, may we honor one another and may we honor those who have authority over us. Make us like Christ in this regard. May we be bold and courageous. May we also be meek and mild. Sanctify us, Lord, we pray. We pray that you would do this for our good, but above all else, we pray that you would be glorified in this and that your kingdom would be furthered. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.